Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in Jewish Studies. I'm Robin Buller, your host. Today, we are joined by Professor Adriana Brodsky of St. Mary's College of Maryland, who will be speaking to us about her new book, Sephardi, Jewish, Argentine, Community and National Identity. It's a really fascinating book that tells the story of Jewish immigration from around the Mediterranean, North Africa, and the Middle East to Argentina at the turn of the 20th century and it examines how they constructed their own complex identities in the decades that followed. Adriana, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Thank you, Robin. I'm very happy to be here with you and uh, your listeners. It's a pleasure to have you. Um, Before we delve into the book, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, Sure. Um, I'm an Argentine native. I was born in um, Buenos Aires, um, and I... First, um, studied English and uh, went in to learn how to teach it as a foreign language. So that was my first career, um, teaching English as a foreign language, both to high school students as well as um, business uh, people um, and the like. Um, And um, I also um, loved history, had always loved um, history, um, and went back to the... um, the teacher training college where I had finished my degree at and did a specialization in history. So I ended up teaching history to future um, teachers of English as a foreign language. So I was able to combine both my love of the English language as well as um, Hmm. the love of history, even though I was not working, I was not doing any research uh, at the time. um, I thought of, um, you know, I, I think I've realized that that is where my next steps were going to take me. So I decided to apply to grad school um, in the United States and uh, was accepted at Duke, where I studied under both Danny James and uh, John French, um, who are the uh, who were the Latin American historians at Duke. John French is still there, but uh, Danny James has um, gone on to um, Indiana University. So I came to the United States to do uh, my PhD, um, and the rest is history, I guess. (laughs) Wonderful. And so I guess with that said, um, the next natural step is what brought you to write Sephardi, Jewish, and Argentine? What are the questions that you set out to answer and why? So um, my my family in Argentina is what is called a, um, we call it in Spanish, café con leche, a family that's uh, coffee and milk. Um, and I guess that kind of makes reference to, um, you know, to kind of racial stereotypes about Jews, um, but it also suggests the sort of the combination of two groups that are different. Um, and so my mother's family um is um, originally from Morocco, from Spanish-speaking uh, Morocco, uh, Tetuan. And um, my father's uh, family um, 
is originally from, um, I think, present day Ukraine. Um, and so I, I grew up um, knowing that these two families had different traditions and kind of really not understanding, you know, why that was, um, uh, why, you know, some holidays seemed so different depending on who I spent, who I was spending them with. Um, and so, um, and, but there was also a sense that I, I could, I could, I could figure out that the Sephardi part of my family was the one that was least understood, uh, by my friends. Um, and so Sephardim are a minority, um, in Argentina. Um, and so that kind of sense of difference of almost, uh, fordingness, um, you know, to Ashkenazim about what, what Sephardim, um, about Sephardi, uh, Sephardi culture, about Sephardi practices, um, that intrigued me. Um, but then I also, whenever I would talk to, you know, to my grandmother and I would say, well, you know, I have another Sephardi friend, you know, who's from, you know, her grandparents came from, um, you know, from Turkey and she'd say, oh, well, no, we're different than them. I'm like, so everybody's different. So I was uh, also then confronted by this, um, you know, these these large distinctions between Ashkenazim and Sephardim uh, seemed to mean a difference. But then whenever I tried to group all the non-Ashkenazim together, um, my grandmother would always um, would always remind me that, well, not all Sephardim are come from the same place, not all Sephardim have the same traditions. And so this sort of, this this labeling, this sense of commonality, um, the absence of commonality, the, uh, the stressing of difference, um, even within the group identified as Sephardim, um, I think, like, stayed with me. And, um, and this book is an attempt at trying to to figure these larger questions out. So what brought um, Sephardim together to act as Sephardim vis-a-vis Ashkenazim? Um, and that is, I mean, as I, as I said, I think the book is, is uh, the answer to some of these questions um, that my family and my living in a Café con Leche family <laughs> reminded me of. Right. And so how did you go about trying to answer these questions then? Um, you know, what archives did you use or, or what were your steps in figuring out these answers? Um, I started uh, just working with uh, my mom's um, community, with the Moroccan community, because um, that was, that was, I was known, um, I could be introduced. Um, and so I wasn't, um, uh, you know, in a sense, a foreigner trying to uh, to come in and look at, you know, their archives. And I, I, and that was, I think a good, a good, a good move and something that, um, it was also strange to find that you always needed to come with somebody that could introduce you. Um, these are community archives. These, in most cases, these community archives are, um, are, are religious institutions that have also social outreach, um, but there was a, um, a sense of, 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 if not fear, um, people were not, people did not know what it meant that I was going to be doing research. Um, and, um, and so I always needed 
um, you know, that to some for somebody to introduce me and to say, you know, it's it's okay for this person to be looking at, you know, our minute books or so starting with um, the Moroccan uh, community, which was the easiest one uh, for me to access, uh, then I sort of created a network of, of um, research assistants, as I call them, um, friends who, uh, people who are members of these communities that I started meeting and then um, requested that they introduce me to the authorities of these um, uh, organizations and that network then allowed me um, entry into um, these communities' archives, um, and so I was. That, that was that was uh, that was essential. Right. Uh, otherwise, with these with these networks, um, I could not I could not have uh, done what what I did. And and there were still you know some communities that you know that it was it was almost it was impossible for me to to get to know somebody that would introduce me, and so. Um, for those communities, I, I, I had to rely on what other historians had, you know, had, had to say about them. Um, the, I also went to Israel. Some, some, some of the material about um, Argentine Sephardim uh, made it to Israel. Mm. And so that was another, that was another place um, that, um, that I sought. Um, and so th- there are very few institutional archives about um, Sephardi Jewish life in Argentina. Well, there are no central um, archives um, that uh, have compiled all the um, um, sec- primary sources about um, Sephardi communities. And so mm-hmm. they're still pretty much in the hands of, um, of uh, religious, social um, and philanthropic organizations, as well as in people's, you know, people's uh, um living room, um, you know, furniture, um, people that have collected, you know, um, because they were themselves involved in, um, you know, pamphlets and and things like that. And so the, 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 the need of, of creating a group, a network, um, and sort of talking to people and letting them know what you're doing, um, that was then essential at also uncovering those, um, family or personal archives uh, of people who had been involved and were willing then to share uh, what they had with me. Right. It sounds like it really involved sort of building a rapport with members of the community. Yep. Interesting. Exactly. Exactly. Um, I wonder if maybe we should take a step back and I wonder if you could give our listeners a quick history lesson on, first of all, perhaps on Sephardim, on Sephardi Jews. Uh, and also on the Sephardim, specifically of Argentina, why why Sephardim chose to immigrate to Argentina, why they left where they had been before. So, um, you know, people usually um, um, describe the Sephardim as um, sort of those Jews who had um, settled in the uh, Iberian Peninsula after the um, expulsion um, from um, from Eretz Israel and um, and then after they sort of, you know, stayed in the, in the peninsula, they developed, you know, customs, traditions um, there. Um, and um, after 1492, with the arrival of the, um, the um, Spanish uh, king and queen and um, the Inquisition, uh, they were uh, expelled uh, from, from Spain, which initiated the uh, Sephardi diaspora 
uh, in the early modern uh, period. And so Jews then moved uh, into um, areas in the Mediterranean, um, significant number went and settled um, in the Ottoman Empire, invited by the Ottoman leadership. Um, they also went into parts of, um, of Northern Europe. Um, and it is um, the, the, the Sephardim that are actually going to, to move to Argentina, which was much later on in the um, very late 19th century and early uh, 20th century, where um, part of that um, Sephardi diaspora that had uh, left um, Spain to settle in these other areas. Um, and so those Jews that came to Argentina, um, the earliest um, the earliest group were the Moroccans, uh, Moroccan Jews that um, started moving uh, into the Americas in some places um, very early on in the 19th century. Um, there's references to Moroccan Jews uh, in the Amazon uh, um, at around um, mid, mid, mid 19th century. Um, and um, in Argentina, they're certainly um, um, the first the, 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 re- the first reference to an organized uh, Sephardi community is uh, um, a, a group of, of Moroccan Jews that request permission to hold uh, religious services. Um, and then what we have is um, sort of movement of other um, uh, of other uh, Sephardi Jews um, coming from present day Turkey roads. Um, who are in many cases um, sort of trying to find um, better economic uh, opportunities uh, as well as escaping um, some, you know, forced military service in some cases. Um, And so um, we have, um, you know, uh, that is a large um, part of the Sephardim uh, come from, um, you know, what what was... um, it was not yet Turkey, but you know, present-day Turkey and and um, and and Rhodes and Salonika. Um, now, the largest group of um, of non-Ashkenazim, um, and so here here is where you know, in some places, you know, these this group that I will um, define right now would perhaps not be considered uh, Sephardim because these were the Arab speakers, the Arabic speakers, uh, Jews from Aleppo and Damascus. Uh, some of whom were probably had never left right uh, that area. They had never been part of that um, um, Sephardi uh, diaspora. Um, so, I mean, in some, I mean, people call them uh, Misrahim, uh, but in Argentina, they that that is a, a word that was never um, used to define um, or to describe um, these uh, Jews and. Um, they came to be. Uh, they came to label themselves, and they came to be labeled as uh, Sephardim um, as well. So the largest group are actually the Arabic speakers, both from uh, Aleppo uh, and Damascus. So, and then there were other smaller, um, smaller groups of um, Sephardi Jews from Italy, Bulgaria, um, Samarkand, um, and other places in, in the Mediterranean. Um, but the biggest groups then are, are the Moroccan, the um, Ladino speakers from um, present-day Turkey and um, the Arabic speakers from Aleppo and Damascus. Um, 
and and what is interesting is that as you see them arriving um they're they're not seeking each other out except for their their own right so in a sense these groups act very much like um the the sort of the sense of the um like the landsmannschaften from ashkenazim right so um moroccan jews are going to seek out moroccan jews um those who are coming in from um from Izmir or from Constant, you know, they're going to search those that are from the same uh, place. Um, they, in many cases, right, it's it's the family uh, groups, uh, people that are going first and then uh, urging other family members to join them in Argentina. So we have kind of family chain migration. Um, but they seldom, um, at the very beginning, they seldom seek other groups out, right? So um, these different Sephardi groups settle in different parts of the cities of the city. They found their own um, institutional um, centers, um, religious, of course, but social, philanthropic, um, and seldom um, seek each other out. Um, so one of one of the processes that I track throughout the book is when is it right that these um, that there is a desire to start thinking outside of these groups that have just until that point gathered only right Moroccan Jews. Um, so at what moments right do they do they look out and seek connections with others, both other Sephardim, but then other um, others like Ashkenazim and then uh, non-Jews. Um, so so I, I would say that the whole book tries to track down. Um, this this process of um, of when is it that they imagine themselves part of um, larger groups um, than the one that they have naturally um, gathered around? Right, and I think this comes through really vividly um, in your discussion of cemeteries. I can, you know, that's a very visual discussion as well as in your discussion of philanthropic organizations. I wonder if you, yeah, I wonder if you could start by expanding on that part of your discussion with us. Yes, I was, um, I had my, as I said, my, my mother's uh, family belonged to the Moroccan, um, community. That was, that was the first, um, that was the first Sephardi cemetery, um, in, in the city of Buenos Aires. Um, and I, remember that I attended it and I was surprised by the existence of a separate section that was not uh, the Moroccan, um, the, that did not belong to the Moroccan community that in fact had belonged to this um, organization of um, called Sfimi um, Dal, which um, um, was a, a group of, of men, women um, who um, had founded um, brothels and um, where there, you know, there were women working uh, for them as prostitutes. And so I was intrigued by, you know, this section of uh, Jews, right? So it's not consecrated land. It's not Catholic. Um, um, it's, it's not been blessed by <laughs> the Catholic um, um, authorities. And so it's Jewish land, but then it's Jewish, but they're different. And so they are, you know, next to it's, it's you know, beyond walled, uh, a walled section. So I was, I was really um, intrigued by the sort of the construction of these walls that um, separated um, 
some um, Jewish um, dead from other Jewish dead. Um, and as I started um, sort of um, thinking and digging deep uh, into this, you know, there's five Sephardi cemeteries in the city of Buenos Aires, one uh, for each uh, group that settled uh, in the city. Um, and then as you move out of the city of Buenos Aires and you go to other parts um, of Argentina, um, you find in so many in many cases you still find that division. You find, um, you know, cemeteries that were created both by Ashkenazim and Sephardim together. They've bought land together, or in some cases, they they one of the communities bought land but sold, um, you know, a section, a part of it to the other group. Um, but still, the but still the uh, the the. Um, the, the sections are walled. And so, um, I mean, I was, I was, I was, it was really fascinating to me to explore, um, the, the concrete meaning of the walls, but well as, as well as the symbolic, uh, meaning of, of those walls, um, sort of this, this sense of, 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 of difference that was translated, um, uh, even into, uh, into the dead, um, and so you see moments in which they are trying to come together to pool their resources and to buy land, which is not something very cheap, um, especially given the fact that, you know, um, the Jewish tradition requires that you can't just, um, uh, you need more and more land as the communities, you know, um, grow. Um, because, um, right. Um, and so the the sense that, um, what brought them together, what allowed for people to solve the issue of cemeteries by seeking alliances, by seeking um, ways of, of working together. Um, and then still, right, they, they felt like they had to mark um, the difference by, by building um, some of these walls, internal walls within within the cemeteries. Um, and that was also, and that is also something that you see when it comes to philanthropy, right? So it wasn't all only the dead that kind of were separated from each other, but, you know, some of these, um, some of these institutions, right, sort of were created to also keep um, the living, right, separate. Um, but um, again, I was, I was struck by the ways in which um, Jews sort of um, felt that they were part of uh, a variety of, of different um, uh, groups, if you were. So um, you have um, philanthropic organizations um, and, and, and trying to follow and chart who it is that they are deciding to help, where is the flow of, of, of support going to I, I realized that that is also a way of trying to understand um, who these um, Jews felt um, a connection uh, to or a sense of community with. Um, and so you have philanthropic organizations in the interior cities of Argentina sort of sending money to Jewish institutions in Buenos Aires. Um, you have philanthropic organizations in interior cities sending support to other uh, Jewish organizations in other interior cities in Argentina. Um, you have Jewish institutions, Sephardi institutions in Argentina, sending money back home and back home meant across the Atlantic, um, support, supporting schools, supporting the building of, uh, of 
local cemeteries back um, across the Atlantic. Um, you have connections between these Argentine Sephardi organizations and uh, Israel, uh, institutions in Israel. Um, well, of course, then not Israel. Um, and then you also have, um, very interestingly, um, you know, Jewish philanthropic organizations supporting um, non-Jewish um, non-Jewish institutions or um, in in Argentina. So, um, and I thought that, well, I mean, you have in many cases, um, you know, uh, Sephardi religious organizations were also neighborhood organizations, and so you see the um you know the um organizations in in the neighborhood of la boca for example uh, a religious organization um participating uh, and donating money to the um to the police station to the social sports club in 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 the neighborhood which are are not jewish but but that also signaled to me um a sense of um of feeling like they were part of these other uh, communities, that they were part of this neighborhood that had these other organizations that were not Jewish, but that, in a sense, um, you know, made them feel part of this larger um, society. And so these, the ways in which I thought who was helping who gave us um, uh, a good sense of um, um, the levels of belonging um, and 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 who these um, Sephardi Jews, um, which groups these Sephardi Jews felt part of, and and that included people from the same town, um, people um, from the same town, but who lived in different parts of Argentina. Uh, it meant still being connected to uh, institutions and the community back home across the Atlantic. It meant being linked to a uh, Jewish presence in, um, in the, um, in, in Israel, it meant also being connected with non-Jews in the neighborhood, um, or, um, in the city. Um, and so I, I, I looked at philanthropy as, as a way of, of identifying, um, these, uh, the sense of belonging and these lines and levels uh, of belonging. Right. Interesting. Yeah, it seems very layered. Um, so, right. And um, you also talk about how, you know, there is this sort of uh, cohesion, but there uh, is also a sort of disunity that becomes more and more pronounced as um, individuals and groups try to make sort of all-encompassing Sephardi organizations and that these efforts ultimately often failed. I wonder if you could expand on that a little bit. Right. So what you see in the case of philanthropy is, is different, right? So to, from these uh, organizations that are attempting to gather all Sephardim to act in the name of all Sephardim, right? Philanthropic groups tend to be, um, you know, groups that are grounded in these uh, individual communities defined by the origin, by their origin. Um, these, um, in, in this other chapter, what I look at is attempts um, uh, that made by Sephardim uh, to create an institution that would represent them um, as a whole, right, as, as one. So creating a, a sort of a single voice, um, and the reasons why um, there were these attempts um, were internal, uh, and, and they were different um, 
so on, on the first case, um, the you know the they they attempted to create a religious uh, central organization so that um, issues of ritual right could be addressed. Um, that rather than you know requiring sort of consultation with a bed dean back home, um, that there was a sense that maybe a Sephardi uh, religious um, uh, rabbinical organization would be created so that those issues could be addressed much more simply. Um, and you have to you have to remember that in many cases these Sephardim are settled are settling in in Argentina without um, without any rabbinical uh, oversight. Um, and I found several instances of letters in which these people um, are writing from places that are far away from Buenos Aires, which um, perhaps had. Um, you know, rabbis are people who were well-versed um, in ritual and tradition, uh, you know, asking, well, what do we do when, you know, a Jewish man has married a non-Jewish woman? Could we bury the non-Jewish woman in the cemetery? Uh, could their child attend our religious school? And so these were some of the issues that that first um, organization attempted to um to solve uh, or to yeah, to create a you know an institution that would provide um, that type of rabbinic uh, leadership um, that they thought was needed, and you, you can sense that that there was a desire to have somebody that could answer these questions for these communities that are pretty much on their own um, creating <laughs> religious uh, organizations uh, without the support, and so um, so that you know the, it, it was. Uh, that was one of the attempts uh, in 1927, but um, eventually that you know that kind of fails, and and one of the um, the reasons that I think uh, it sort of explains that failure is um, the fact that even though there seemed to have been a need for um, religious um, leadership, um, the communities had. Uh, the communities that had been created in Argentina had um, developed along ley lines, and so there was no, um, there was not, there was no religious um, leadership um, that had been there from the very beginning. There are a couple of exceptions, and the um, the Arabic speakers um, tended to be a little bit more uh, religious, and so they did they did develop um, sort of a religious. Um, uh, a bed dean that uh, that addressed those issues within their own uh, community, um, but what I felt was that the Sephardim in general um, said, uh, "We if if we're going to create perhaps a single voice, that single voice does not need to be a religious um, uh, a religious voice. Uh, we are." Uh, we are lay, uh, I mean, we are lay communities. We are, I mean, lay in the sense of what is going to define us is not necessarily our religious practices. Um, okay, it's like being Moroccan we, or being um, Turkish or Ottoman. It's exactly, right. exactly, exactly. And so uh, there were also issues of um, of personality. Um, the uh, The rabbi that had been chosen to, to lead this uh, religious institution um, clashed with um, many many of the lay leaders that resented um, having um, a religious leader tell them what to do. Um, 
And so, so that was uh, that was an internal need, uh, sort of a, a desire, perhaps, to have a religious religious leadership that then made them realize that um, no, we do not want a religious leader. We much rather uh, continue um, dealing with these issues of ways in which we have maybe um, not very um, not very effectively, but. We've 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 dealt with it before. We'll continue to deal um, with that. Um, the second institution um, that they attempted to create was a confederation of Sephardi uh, institutions, um, which um, the intention of that. Um, Sephardim felt that Ashkenazim were not taking them seriously. That Ashkenazim had all these ideas about um, what Sephardim. Um, were like, and um, that they they needed to get to Sephardim needed to get together to push back against some of these uh, generalizations that the Ashkenazim uh, were making. And so, what is interesting here is that what brings them together is a desire to act together vis-a-vis the Ashkenazim to be able to they say, defend ourselves against um, what Ashkenazim were saying uh, about them. Um, and so um, it's, it's, it's interesting that, um, that what brings them together is, is the outside and the sort of the threat of um, the threat that if they do not band together their voices as individual groups, you know, from Morocco, from Turkey, from um, from uh, Syria, that that would not be a strong enough of a defense, and that if they came together, uh, that they would be um, more effective at um, at preventing Ashkenazim to continue saying what they were saying uh, about them. And um, the interesting thing is that you know that that kind of that attempt fails uh, because the Ashkenazim at the same time are also attempting to create um, institutions that will represent all Jews in Argentina. And so Sephardim, I think, felt like they could not have this separatist move going on when it was clear also that the Argentine community, Argentine Jewish community did require um, uh, uh, an organization that would speak uh, on behalf of all Jews to um, the Argentine um, government. And so um, eventually, right, this single Jewish organization will be created in Argentina. And and so um, I think that this Sephardi uh, attempt at creating a Sephardi institution fails because they decide that, you know, pursuing perhaps the Jewish um um, institution or the institution that would represent all Jews would um, would be welcome, and that it was necessary, and that you know insisting on a separatist organization would was not the way to go. Right. So I'm thinking of how you talk, uh, especially in the opening of your book, about how Sephardim were a, a little bit more invisible in Argentinian society than Ashkenazim, and how that was in some ways to their advantage, but it seems like in other ways they wanted to maintain this distinction and, and be, remain visible. Yes. 
Right. Um, that that is that is right, and that is you know that is always the line that they will <laughs> that they will walk, and in some cases they will decide that well, yes, you know maybe we do need to to continue to just not be very visible or um, to just you know be be within our own individual you know communities of origin but then in, in, in some other moments they they do realize that you know that that it is it, it is important and it is strategic to actually come together uh to act uh, as one um so yes and so in the last case the last uh, attempt at coming together uh, happens in connection with um the holocaust and um a sort of a desire to come together and organize Sephardim in order to help Sephardim who had suffered um, during uh, the, the Shoah, okay. um, as well as attempt to um, attempt to be a little bit more efficient at supporting all Sephardim in Argentina. So um, so both, both concerned about those who had suffered um, during the war um, and then those uh, in Argentina um, to create some more central institutions that would make make, make it easier uh, for Sephardim to help Sephardim in Argentina as well. Um, and that uh, eventually, I think, I mean that, I mean, as I said, all these all these institutions fail. Um, this, as I said, the line navigating this line between we re, we are very interested in keeping our own identities alive, identities as Moroccan Jews, identities as um, you know Ottoman um, you know um, Jews, identity as um, as Aleppo and Jews, uh, their desire to keep that um, and to defend that um, and to preserve that um, sort of acting uh, in some moments. Um, and deciding that, well, there are moments in which it, it might be better to override our differences and, and to think about ourselves as one. Um, and so these were, these were the cases in which they thought um, they, it would be best to think of themselves as one. Um, and they were very short-lived. <laughs> I can, yeah, I mean, there are so many complex, complex elements and layers being added to these identities, it's no wonder that you know there are tensions. Um, I guess to add one more <laughs> layer, you talk about uh, the role that Zionism played in the history of this population. I wonder if you could tell us about how that enters into this history. Yes, I, I actually would say that if there was, uh, you know, one um, one moment in which Sephardim could come together and act as one, it was in, in the realm of, of, of Zionism um, because they did find, they, they did found um, Zionist centers and all Sephardi groups participated in them. And so this is, you know, this is, this is one of the, one of the, um, the issues that brought them together um, and what is interesting is that, I mean, I found that what is interesting is that if you were to ask, um, you know, members of the Ashkenazi, um, you know, communities, you know, if, if Sephardim had been in, involved in, in Zionism, their response would be no. I mean, they, they had become invisible even to Ashkenazim. And so I thought this is, this is a story that 
really needs to be told over and over that Sephardim were seriously involved in um, in Zionism. They 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 related to Zionism uh, differently from uh, from the way in which Ashkenazim uh, did. They um, so here, what we see is that amongst Sephardim, um, the sort of the notion of different uh, Zionist parties doesn't uh, doesn't play out. Sephardim decide to uh, remain outside these political distinctions, and they very clearly from day one they want to act as Sephardim, sort of outside of the political arena of political parties, and they want to act as Sephardim. And what is guiding that what is guided them um, was um, a, a fear that if they did not do that, if they did not found Sephardi Zionist institutions and demand that their help be recorded as coming from Sephardim in Argentina, in this case, that their efforts would be uh, erased, that their efforts would would not be visible. And so um, that that's that's that is what is driving um, their um, their participation. That you know they are aware that if they do not um, leave behind evidence of how Sephardim were mobilizing uh, to help uh, with the creation of the state, that that help would not be visible, that it would not be recorded. And so they spend a lot of energy, they spent a lot of energy and a lot of time um, raising money and demanding that the um, Federation of Zionist Institutions in Argentina record their entry as the money that was raised by Sephardim, uh, keeping um, always evidence of how much they were working uh, for the state. And so what is interesting in the case of, of Zionism is that this is right one of the moments in which um, their desire for visibility um, in the in the creation of the state is what um, what makes them forget about all these internal differences and come together and organize events, fundraising events, um, um, and and raise money and uh, be part of of um, you know the what they call the uh, rebirth of the of the national uh, project. So we see them extremely active um, in, um, in in Zionism, which is. Uh, unfortunately, um, you know, even though the Sephardim put so much energy in trying to make their contribution visible, uh, it seems not to have um, not to have actually uh, been uh, been visible um, by by those at the time, and even by scholars. Scholars do not tend to devote that much time to. Um, digging and trying to uncover that story of Sephardi participation in the Zionist movement. Right. And you also talk about how women were involved in the Sephardi Zionist movement, but also in um, a number of Sephardi organizations and associational life. Uh, yeah. yeah. Yes. They, they were central, um, even though, of course, they, they, um, they weren't imagined to be up uh, to, to 
to be fulfilling these uh, roles um, that were um, that contributed to these um, to these organizations, but they 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 were probably not imagined as as playing a central role, uh, and that is that is why it is important that we recover the centrality of, of what it is that they um, that they did, um, especially because a lot of these philanthropic. Uh, organizations that I talked about in one chapter, uh, most of them were actually um, led, um, not led, but most of the fundraising was actually done by the women. Um, They they were the ones that were doing uh, the work behind the scene, the scenes for, um, for these, for these uh, organizations to have the money with which to help others. And so women are central in, in allowing these philanthropic organizations to distribute, um, um, you know, aid. Um, and they are central also in preserving both um, individual identities um, from, from these communities uh, of origin, um, as well as, you know, for stressing the sort of the, um, the, the Jewish, uh, Jewish identity as well. So I look at um, uh, organizations that, um, that allowed uh, for um, Jewish uh, kids to uh, remain with, within Jewish uh, orphanages. Um, that is to say, uh, allowing for Jewish uh, children to be born and raised, or to be raised in uh, in Jewish uh, contexts, as opposed to, um, you know, being in institutions that were not uh, Jewish. Um, so they were central in providing some of these services that um, um, made it possible for Jews to continue being uh, Jews or to receiving some of these services in Jewish, uh, in Jewish institutions, as opposed to non-Jewish institutions. Um, And of course, um, as, as well as, you know, um, making it possible for um, Jews to, to continue with their own individual um, community of origin uh, identity as well, so they I see them sort of fulfilling these two these two roles um, of um, al- making it possible for Jews to continue being Jewish in Argentina, as well as for uh, some of these Sephardi groups to continue being um, um, uh, Jews from right Morocco, Jews from. Um, these um, other uh, places as well, um, and and what is fascinating as well is that you know they're 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 carrying out these goals of um, of uh, keeping Jewish identity alive, keeping individual Jewish identities alive uh, by copying right these Argentine female organizations. Um, sort of celebrating, right? The sort of or having fundraising events in the same places where these Argentine philanthropic non-Jewish organizations are organizing their own events. So mirroring um, the established Argentine um, non-Jewish um, female organizations, um, but using them. I mean, the, for the Jewish women, using these places and these um, and these traditions and these practices in order to stress the Jewish identity and the specific Jewish identity of Jews from Morocco, for example. I wonder, just because I found this part particularly uh, fascinating, I wonder if you could tell our listeners a little bit about your examination of how food 
speaks to um, how women sort of navigated and I guess negotiated their um, various identities and affiliations. Right. So um, I was I was always um, in, um, intrigued, right, by the ways in which um, Sephardi women would would talk about their own culinary traditions, and um, they would be pretty quick to, you know, to say, well, that's not my food. That's not what we cook. That's not what we eat. Um, and so that food really did become a, a symbol for for um, these communities' um, identities and and the ways in, in which then, you know, women by cooking, right, these uh, traditions and, uh, and, and passing them on to future generations, um, how, how central that was, you know, for the maintenance of these uh, particular Sephardi identity um, and particular to these groups. Um, so, and I, I got to taste the most fabulous food. (laughs) (laughs) What a dream project in terms of food. Yes, 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 yes. And so your book, uh, closes with an examination of institutional practices. So you look at education and marriage and what those institutions tell us about how the community's identity sort of evolved over time. I wonder if, yeah, I wonder if you could finish by talking with us about that. Yeah, and I will. Um, I will start by giving you again another um, another little story um, that 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 fueled my my desire to delve into these issues. Um, and so I remembered asking when I was um, um, a young child, my grandmother, what she remembered whenever she met um, my dad. Um, so what I was intrigued about, you know, how was my father introduced into uh, my mom's family? Um, and I remember that uh, my, my grandma was uh, very, very open about it. And she said she was shocked when she learned that, you know, my dad was a Russo, was a, a Russian Jew. Um, and, um, y- you know, at that time, to me, growing up in a Jewish community where, um, these distinctions between, I mean, I, I was not paying attention to whether my Jewish friends were, uh, you know, Ashkenazim or Sephardim. I, that was not a question that I, you know, that would come to my mind. Um, but it clearly did to her. Um, and it really did matter uh, to her uh, when, um, when she met uh, my dad. Um and so I, I was intrigued, um, just like I had been, just like I had been intrigued about the issue of, of uh, borders and walls in, in, in cemeteries. I was I was really struck by um, almost uh, a sense that um, it wasn't a, a marriage that was frowned upon um, by no means, but that 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 the, the first reaction had been, well, he, he's 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 a Russo, he's a Russian Jew, right, an outsider, um, I suppose. An outsider, right? An outsider. Um, my grandmother, of course, had married um, somebody from the same town that her parents were from. Um, uh, she, my grandmother was born in Argentina, but um, she married, right? She married um, uh, a fellow, um, so somebody who her parents knew um, back from uh, Tetuan, from from the town, from the town where they had lived. 
And so, um, you know, I, I, I can imagine, you know, sort of now sort of thinking about and, and studying and realizing how central, right, their identity as Moroccan Jews had been, as opposed to, you know, part of this larger Argentine Jewish community, or even part of this larger Sephardi community, you know, to them, their sense of who was, um, who was them and who was, you know, who was us and who was them was, was very clear. And, and certainly Russian Jews were not part of, of, of the group that they thought, um, you know, as, as, as us. And so I was very intrigued about who had married who, when. <laughs> and so I delved into, um, into marriage records to try to figure out when is it that um, that Sephardi groups, Sephardi individual Sephardi groups, um, start in a sense crossing the aisle and uh, marrying um, members, not not members of their own group. And and what is interesting is that um, in many cases, um, what you see is a lot more marriage to Ashkenazim than marriage to other Sephardi, uh, other Sephardim from other Sephardi groups. And so you see that if there is, if there is a crossing of the aisle, if there is, if the, whenever there are, there begin to be marriages uh, outside of that immediate group of belonging, that is most likely going to, going to be marriages uh, with Ashkenazim than with other um, Sephardi groups from different origins. So someone from, from Constantinople is less likely to marry someone from Salonika than they are someone whose family right. is from right. Um and, and it would depend on, on which uh, congregation, you know, they attended. Some of the Salonican uh, Jews attended a congregation usually with, um, with other um with other members of the Ottoman, and, but but it would be like you know between Moroccans and 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 you know yeah Izmir Jews that that almost never happened, um, and so which then reminded me right that that what is happening is that this generation of Argentine Jews that um, that are being raised in Argentina are attending institutions where they are perhaps much more likely to meet. Ashkenazi Jews than they are to meet um, other Sephardim from other communities of origin. And so um, it's interesting to think about then the, the role um, that, um, you know, uh, institutions that are allowing for the coming together of different, uh, of different groups and the role that then Argentina has, Argentina and Argentine institutions has um, in all this, right? So um, a lot of these, a lot of these, um, marriage partners um, are found in um, Argentine university, right? So when these kids are attending university, um, that's when they're meeting, um, you know, non, you know, non Moroccan partners say. Um, and because the Ashkenazi, uh, you know, um, the Ashkenazi group is much larger than uh, it's, it's significantly bigger than the, than the Sephardi community, um, you know, it, it, if they aren't encountering other Jews, it is very likely that they are encountering Ashkenazi Jews. Um, so, okay, so it might not be deliberate so much as right. statistically more likely. Exactly, right. exactly. 
Um, but then, you know, the, the other sense is that, you know, these, these Jewish, uh, these Jewish young people are uh, also uh, changing the way in which, um, how they see themselves, right? So more and more, these these children that are choosing, right, partners across the aisle, are finding uh, themselves thinking of themselves as Argentine Jews much more than um, their parents or the previous generations who perhaps imagined themselves as being not. I mean, yes, you know, yes, Argentine Jews overall, but really, 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 right, members of the Moroccan community or members of the, um, of, of, you know, the, the Syrian community from Aleppo. or So what we see, I think, also in their choice of, of marriage partners um, that are sort of expanding uh, outside of, um, of these um, of these smaller communities of origin is, is a sense that, um, there's, there's something that's uniting, right. These young, um, young men and women, um, and is, is their sense of being Argentine Jews much more than, um, members of their, um, of their parents' communities of origin. Hmm. Their worlds are just getting bigger. Yes, yes, Mm -hmm. yes, exactly right. Exactly right. Exactly right. Fascinating. So Adriana, we've taken up, um, a lot of your Sunday morning, but uh, I want to know what you're working on next. Oh, fa- yes. Um, I am um, looking at um, that generation of um, uh, Sephardi Jews that are born in Argentina and uh, who begin to navigate this sort of fine line between continuing to feel themselves as part of these individual Sephardi communities of origin and um, Argent members of the Argentine Jewish community, um, and their decision to um, uh, become part of the Zionist movement and become part of Zionist youth groups, and deciding um, to actually make Aliyah to, to move to Israel, um, starting with the creation of the state in 1948, um, onwards, um, until 1970, uh, the early part of the 1970s. Um, so I'm, I'm kind of following, you know, this generation who decides to members of this, uh, generation who decide to, um, to go and live in Israel, or those who had started thinking about that and decide to remain in Argentina as well. So the ways in which um, um, Argentine identity gets uh, reconfigured once they move to um, to Israel, and the ways in which um, their thinking about moving to Israel, working for moving to Israel, but remaining in Argentina also shapes um, the Argentine community um, through, um, their actions as well. So it's a study on, uh, Argentine, uh, Jewish Sephardi youth and their desires to, uh, to, to move to, to Israel. That sounds like a fascinating, almost sequel to this project. Exactly. That's how I see it. That's how I see it. I really look forward to reading that. Um, Adriana, thank you so much for joining us today. This has been wonderful. Oh, thank you so much, Robin, and um, very happy to have been here with you and uh, all the listeners. Bye now. <laughs> Bye-bye. 
That was Adriana Brodsky speaking with us about her new book, Sephardi Jewish Argentine, Community and National Identity, which is available through Indiana University Press. If you like listening to New Books and Jewish Studies, please do consider subscribing. And please rate us wherever you get your podcasts. We really appreciate hearing from you guys. Thanks for tuning in.